Friends, if you have your Bible in hand, I'd encourage you to open it to 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you're here with us in person, make sure you have one of our little uh, fellowship cups to celebrate communion together, the wafer and so forth. And if you're like me, uh, make sure it opens a little bit before before the time comes so you know you have one of those that doesn't have too much glue uh, in the process as it's been put together. And uh, for folks at home, have your uh, communion elements close at hand because at the close of the message, we're going to remember Jesus' great love for us and what he did for us. We've come to an interesting passage in our study of First Peter. And First uh, Peter, remember, we always start with the theme of First Peter. He's writing to uh, believers, uh, most of them of the Jewish background, Jewish believers scattered across what today is modern Turkey, the northern five provinces of the Roman Empire. Peter is writing to people who are undergoing a level of persecution, and he's reminding them that that persecution and suffering has come into their lives because of the blessing that they've experienced in knowing Jesus as their Savior. He says, no longer are you who you used to be. You no longer fit into this sinful world. You now have been called out, have been separated to be God's family, to be God's holy ones. That's where the word saint comes from, the Greek word hagios, which is the holy ones. And that means not that we are sinless in this life. We want to sin less, but we know until we go to be with Jesus, we won't be sinless. But the holy ones are those that God calls out and sets apart for his use. God needs his holy ones in every walk of life. He needs farmers and teachers and home builders, uh, police officers, first responders. He needs holy ones, the children of God, to shine his light, to be his witnesses in all these areas. And so though Peter says they're going through difficult times because they don't fit comfortably into this selfish and sinful world, he says you serve an important part in this world. And we're going to see that even in the midst of suffering or persecution, we have an important role to play. God calls us to be a blessing in this hurting world. The book of Genesis speaks of a time like no others. It's become the historic example of a world turned upside down, a world so far away from God's good and perfect world that he created and put man and woman in the Garden of Eden, and it was good. It was all good. In comparison to that idyllic example of Eden, we have the days of Noah. The days of Noah are our example of a sinful and selfish and broken world, completely corrupted by sin from top to bottom. We read the example of Noah's life in the world in which he lived in Genesis chapter 6 just to remind us of what the days of Noah were like. Beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes 
of the Lord. The days of Noah. In fact, that's what we've called today's message, a quote from 1 Peter chapter 3, as in the days of Noah. We see that phrase a number of times in the New Testament, and it always harkens back to a world living its own way, selfish and sinful, with not a single thought for the God who made us and loved us, seeks to save us, as in the days of Noah. That's a selfish world. That's a sinful world. That's a secular world. It's a world that cares not about God. It's a world like we live in today. It's a world that people in Peter's day, in the provinces that he wrote to, were familiar with. This is the way of mankind. Sinful, selfish, corrupt, and broken. And yet, just as Noah found favor in God's eyes and was an important witness in that time, and God brought about salvation for the human race as a whole, so God today wants to work in our lives. And Peter uses Noah's days as an example of God at work with us today. Now this passage, I'll be honest, it contains some uh, phrases and words that have stumped Bible scholars since Peter wrote it almost 2,000 years ago. People have a lot of opinions about it, and we can't go through all of those and be completely dogmatic and sure of what they mean, but we know the general gist of it. The direction and theme of these verses is very clear, though, and it's all about Jesus. The teaching on Christ is crystal clear. The example, the illustration that Peter uses connected to the days of Noah, that's a little bit more difficult to understand, but we'll look at it in just a moment. As we go through the example of Jesus, remember the setting of this. Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering are being persecuted. And as we saw last week, Peter says, sometimes you can do the right thing and still suffer for it. You can seek to live a godly life and people, because of that, will set themselves up in opposition to you. They don't like to be shown that there's a way different than sin and selfishness. It makes them feel condemned. Even if you haven't said one word against them, your very life will serve as condemnation to them. And they will make themselves your enemy. Well, Peter writes, they did that to Jesus and they'll do it to us. Remember as Jesus says, it's not on the screen, but remember Jesus says, just as the world hated me, they'll hate you too. But some will listen to me and some will listen to you as well. So we see the example of Jesus. He's our example in times of rejection and suffering and persecution. We'll look at three distinct areas before we come to the communion table. The first is that Jesus, as Peter says, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for doing good, not for doing wrong. Jesus suffered as well, Peter says, suffering the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the suffering of Jesus. And he's our example. We'll begin our reading in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Peter writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus is our example. He suffered for doing good. And in his suffering, he did good. Not only was he the sinless Lamb of God, but he was sacrificed for our sin. Through his suffering and death, something wonderful was achieved. Salvation. And Peter uses that enormously important example to remind us and encourage us that even our suffering as followers of Christ can bring about good for ourselves or for others who witness our example. Just one word. There's a lot of difficult Greek in here, and and I'll be the first to profess. I'm not one of those pastors who pretends to be a Greek scholar, but I'm able to read it and I'm able to read the the uh, commentaries that are based on the Greek text. And this is tough itself. In fact, many people disagree with the way the New International Version that I've just read have translated it. Uh, That last phrase, Jesus, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. We say, well, that's crystal clear. That's Jesus, his death and his resurrection. He was put to death by man in the body and the Spirit of God brought him back to life. But that's not capital S spirit in Greek. In fact, there are no capitals in the original language. You don't know which is speaking of the spirit of Christ uh, or the spirit of man, the spiritual realm, or the Holy Spirit. This can be equally well translated in some ways makes more sense that Jesus was put to death in the physical realm, but his resurrection was... The resurrection was in the spiritual realm, not that he was... a insubstantial ghost but he was a glorified glorious spiritual being which was shown in his post-resurrection appearances he more resembled the christ on the mount of transfiguration think of the the blazing glory that john on the isle of patmos saw this is jesus died in the physical realm resurrected in the spiritual realm as the glorious spiritual being that he is and a type of spiritual glorious body that we too will share one day and that becomes clear a little bit later what the meaning of that actually is jesus suffered and died for us scripture is clear that when we experience suffering or opposition for our faith it's not necessarily a bad thing it's painful Scripture says suffering can be God's discipline for the children that he loves to help us to grow, to be more like Jesus. In fact, that's the positive line that the book of James takes. We've read this passage many times, but James tells us, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Without suffering, without pushback, without opposition, as a believer, you're not going to mature. You're not going to be all that you could be in Christ. You know, I love to watch the uh, the uh, missions to space, to the International Space Station, the astronauts up there working, but the thing they face is that in zero gravity, their muscles just instantly begin to atrophy. 
They work as hard. They have exercise machines and everything. But now they've come to understand that no matter how hard they try to exercise in zero gravity, that is no opposition from gravity pulling against them, their hearts decay and they'll never recover. That's why they're starting to really wonder if there's future for mankind in space in low gravity because God has made us physically to become strong and healthy in the face of opposition. Gravity, it's built in. Well, that spiritual opposition is the way we grow. Our faith, trusting God, see Him bring us through these difficult times, perseverance leading to maturity. We often pray for just the opposite, don't we? Oh Lord, let nothing bad come my way. God says, I love you too much to protect you, to bubble wrap you. The world needs you strong and shining your light in difficult situations to be my witnesses. I love you too much not to allow difficulties to come into your life. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it amazingly in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that is his goal, is to be like Jesus in all ways, even in suffering. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, Paul says, I want to follow Jesus, His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. I want to follow in His steps. That's where Christian maturity lies for each one of us. It'll be different for each one. Some, it's a fiery persecution, like Christians of old suffered. For others, it's just resurrection or the heartbreak of an unbelieving family that ostracizes you and cuts you out of their lives. But God is with us each step of the way as we seek to follow in Jesus' steps. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. And as His followers, Peter says, we should expect no different but suffer for doing good. Secondly, now we bring in the illustration of the days of Noah. It's the question not only of suffering but following Jesus in the witness He bore witnessing that judgment is coming. Jesus in his, <clears throat> in his ministry, He said, my return, my coming is going to be like the days of Noah. You're not going to see what's coming. You're going to be going on your merry way, then bam. Just like the people were shocked that they were washed away. So it will be because judgment is coming. This type of witness <clears throat> doesn't seem pleasant. We always want to witness to just the positive things. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The four spiritual laws begin that way. And that's the good news. But you can't have the good news without the warning that if you reject God's offer of salvation, there is no hope except the expectation of judgment and death eternal separation from the God who loves you. <clears throat> Witnessing that judgment is coming. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll pick up again Peter's teaching in verse 19. Peter says, Jesus put to death 
in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19, the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, oh, we'll stop right there. I think that's where we end. Yeah. It's one of those where I'll stop midway through a verse. Peter now uses the illustration of Noah and something that Jesus did following his death and burial that he preached to spirits in prison. Now, this is the question that comes in. What exactly is Peter referring to? We know that the spirits that Jesus speaks to, there's questions about who they were, the identity, and there's usually a couple main identifications. Some people say, well, it says these are, these are those that were present when the ark was being built. And so, so, so Jesus is preaching to the people who died in the flood. And then they get to decide whether or not to believe him and be saved, which I think is kind of odd because if you'd been in the grave in Sheol in Hades for these many, many years, wouldn't you 100% accept Jesus' message? In fact, the word used for preach there, translated as preach, isn't to preach the good news. That word is the word we get the word evangelism from, the Greek word euangelizomai. This is a different word. This is a word that means pronouncement, past judgment. Jesus is pronouncing judgment, passing judgment on spirits in prison. His pronunciation was that he was the victor, even through the cross. That God's grace could not be stopped by the grave or death. And that has now assured the punishment of these spirits in prison. Who were they? Spirits. That word spirits is not used in Scripture to uh, ever uh, speak of humans who have died. We're always referred to as souls. Spirits refer to spiritual beings from start to finish. Angels and fallen angels, unclean spirits, demonic beings. So Jesus is speaking to fallen spiritual beings fallen angels in chains in prison because of their sin and rebellion long ago. In about three places, they're spoken of fallen angels in connection to the time of Noah, that they had some sin that precipitated the sinfulness of mankind or made it worse, that brought about God's judgment on the world, the destruction by the flood. We see it in Second Peter. We're going to see it again eventually. We see it also in the book of Jude that it's spoken of as well, that these spirits were involved in the days of Noah. Noah, in his time, though, was a witness by the godly life he lived, the God he followed, and what he did. In faith, he built an ark, And that ark took many years. Some people claim 120 years, but they're using the 120 years mentioned in Genesis in the wrong way. 
more than likely the three sons were born and that was only about 75 years or so before the flood came but it took decades to build the ark and in that time noah which peter refers to in second peter as a preacher of righteousness would share that judgment was coming that he was a witness in his time. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, this is how it's referred to Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah preached in the face of a sinful generation. As we saw at the beginning from Genesis 6, in the days of Noah, every inclination of man's heart was to sin. But where did the prisoners in chains come in? Many people connect it back to Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God taking daughters of men as their wives. Some of the Jewish teachers in the intertestamental times between old and new testament they believe that those were fallen angels had sexual congress with humans and produced a strange spiritual human hybrid and they identify that as the nephilim that are mentioned in genesis chapter 6 as a race of giants but the nephilim weren't destroyed by the flood, they show up in the book of Numbers during the time of the Exodus. When the spies went into the land, they saw Nephilim. We see a giant later in Goliath and among the Philistines. And so we're not sure if those are connected at all. We do know, though, that they were involved. They were involved somehow in what was going on in the days of Noah. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking of the days of Noah himself. Matthew chapter 24, uh, we'll put it up on the screen, verses 38 to 40. Jesus said, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, they do nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus used it again to say that life was going on apart from God. These people thought it would never change. It was their own way. They'd made the world in their own image. They had become their own God. And Jesus said it ended suddenly for them. The angelic involvement, we're not sure what it was or what form it took, but in the book of Jude, which is only one chapter, so when you say Jude 6, you're saying verse 6, Jude 6, referring to these beings, says, And angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So we know these spirits imprisoned, chained in darkness, are waiting the judgment day. And Jesus during that process of burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus went and proclaimed victory over these imprisoned angelic beings. Some people say, well, were they in hell? Did Jesus go to hell? Remember, it says in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. Scripture never says that. 
We know that Jesus led captivity captive in His train, but that's Jesus taking those faithful who are in the temporary abode of the faithful dead. Jesus referred to it as Abraham's bosom or the side of Abraham, the father of faith. He took these faithful who were waiting for their salvation till the day Jesus paid for their sins on the cross. He took them home with Him to heaven when He ascended. And part of that ascension and glorification and exaltation was Jesus proclaiming victory over these fallen angelic beings. Moses was our example of faith in the face of a sinful world. We'll see it again in a few weeks, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter uses the example of, Mo, of Noah being saved from a sinful situation, a sinful world, as well as Lot being saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, faithful being saved out of a sinful situation. In both of these examples, Peter sums it up by saying, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. A reference once again to sinners awaiting the final judgment as well as fallen angelic beings awaiting for judgment. So the point Peter makes in this passage is that Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to save and he's faithful to judge the wicked. God is faithful in both of those, salvation and punishment. But Peter writes this as an encouragement to us. Not only are we to witness in this lost and hurting world, but we experience salvation just as Noah did. Salvation. We are safe in the ark of the risen Lord. The ark itself was a picture of salvation. Many things in the Old Testament are pictures of what Jesus would do. God is giving a preview so that when Jesus does it, we understand it. It's familiar to us. We've seen something like it in the past. The sacrificial lamb, the ark, saving those within. If we are in Christ by faith, we are saved from this sinful world. We don't experience the judgment the separation from a loving God that they will experience. Jesus is our ark. We finish that passage this morning by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, midway through verse 20. Speaking of the ark, Peter continues, In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels, at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. They're all beneath Him the glorious angels who praise Him, the angels imprisoned waiting judgment on whom He's pronounced their judgment. They are all beneath the exalted Lord. This quotes the book of Psalms where the Lord says, sit at my right hand, all your enemies will be beneath your feet. This is the victory of Jesus. 
And we have a part in it. He is our ark. Just as eight were saved from the flood, now you who are in Christ through faith are saved. Saved from sin and death. What's it mean that you're saved through baptism? As Baptists, we should point to that and say, see, you've got to be baptized. But that's not the water baptism. In fact, Peter makes that very clear. He says it's not physically the body going in water that washes you clean. The word baptizo means to be immersed into. The spiritual meaning of baptism is that through faith, you are in Christ. When God looks at you, He sees you in His Son. You're saved. You're in Jesus. The ark of the risen Lord. And that comes through faith in Christ. Not a physical ceremony, but by putting your faith in Jesus alone and what He did for you on the cross to win your salvation. Of course, that's made very clear in passages like Romans chapter 10 that we quote often. Verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that this, the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Peter's writing to people, though the world seems to be set against them, they're safe in Christ. He says, even if you suffer for doing good, take heart. Jesus suffered. Jesus rose. Jesus was exalted. All angelic beings are beneath His feet. And you're safe in Jesus. Scripture teaches, friends, not only are you saved, but you're kept. I've often imagined what it would be like to be with Noah and his family in the ark, tossed about in the stormy ocean, the world swept away, but being safe in the ark, taking care of the animals. What it would have been like? Well, this is where we find ourselves today. Oh, a storm may rage outside. We see a world that seems to be turned upside down, consumed with selfishness, denying that anything like truth even exists. And yet we are safe in the arms of Jesus. And we're kept in the arms of Jesus. Because Jesus says He's our good shepherd. And as His sheep, He will not lose one of us. <laughs> John chapter 10. Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Safe in Jesus. Friends, this is an encouraging passage. No matter what you face, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, God will bring you through. He'll not bring you through by the skin of your teeth. He will bring you through stronger, more mature, and more like Jesus as we follow in His steps. As Paul says, to know Him, to share in His suffering, to follow Him in His death, and somehow, 
someday rejoice as we share His resurrection. We look forward to that. Until then, this world needs our witness. As in the days of Noah, as it is today. And now, friends, as we've talked about suffering and witnessing and the salvation we share, let's come to the Lord's table and remember what price Jesus paid for it. Let's pray and then we'll share the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we cannot fully comprehend what Jesus did for us as He took our sins to the cross, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we live in a day like the day of Noah. Lord, people not knowing the judgment is coming, living life for selfish pleasure, giving no thought of God who made us, our eternity that hangs over each one of us. Lord, in these days, just as Noah was a preacher of righteousness by his actions and by his words, Lord, you call us as your children to be witnesses to Jesus' love and respectfully and gently give reason for the hope we have. Lord, may each one of us be your missionaries today in this world as Noah did in his world so many years ago. Father, this is all made possible to us today for Jesus, what He did for us. And so, Lord, as Jesus invites us as often as we do it to come to His table to remember His body freely given and His blood shed for us, Lord, we come to You. Lord, we don't do it in an unworthy manner because we recognize what Jesus did for us. It's our only hope. and We celebrate the hope we have today. We pray this all in His loving name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, first let's peel back the cellophane layer and take the wafer which reminds us of the bread which is the symbol of the body of Jesus. Let's take that and share that together. For Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Jesus, after supper, took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, I'd ask you to stand with me as we're dismissed in prayer. Heavenly Father, we say thank you. Thank you for the body and the blood of your precious Son, freely given for us. Lord, through Jesus' suffering, the righteous for the unrighteous. He brought salvation to a sinful and lost world. And now, Father, as we remember what Christ did for us, let us go from this place of worship to our places of ministry. Lord, you have prepared people to hear this week from your children. Lord, may they see in the lives we live and in the words we say, may they see hope for them in a lost world. Lord, bring many, many more into the ark of salvation as they put their faith in Jesus. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.